He's a former two-term Texas state representative, former Texas Freedom Caucus chairman, and a retired Fort Worth PD officer, continuing his crusade to defend and protect the Constitution for we the people. Welcome to the Mike Lang Show. Got a lot to talk about today from State Farm to Whoopi Goldberg to school shootings and much more. John, glad to have you back. Thanks, Mike. I tell you what, you blink around here and it just seems like the news cycle has gone from a 12-hour cycle to a four-hour cycle, sometimes to a two-hour cycle, but it's good to be back. Yeah, that's, that's the way it works. And I tell you what, I was on vacation down the sunny beaches of Florida, had a great time and uh, missed part of that news cycle. But now that we're back, we're ready to go. That's awesome. We had a good weekend, had a, a graduation party for our son, kicking another one out of the nest hopefully soon. Great, man. Congratulations to your son. Thank you very much. Glad, yeah. glad he finally made it. Yep, exactly. <sighs> Empty nest. Here we come. Kate, in the control room, how are you doing today? Doing great. Back from the beach. Wish I was still there. Likewise, likewise. But back to business, right? Let's start with State Farm. State Farm had an LGBT book program that they called the Gender cool project that some of their agents via an email that somebody released they were doing books for five plus year olds uh, in schools gender specific lgbtq everything like that and it started to hit the fan i actually have state farm call my agent talk to people in their office and they told me they didn't know anything about it they weren't part of it nor would they be part of that well, from my understanding is the, the majority of their agents were kind of left out in the cold in this one. And in fact, I saw recently or in the last day or so online where, you know, a secret group basically of nothing but State Farm agents, over 4,000 of them have on Facebook. And they were saying over 99% were coming back loudly screaming. They had no idea this was going on. They do not appreciate it. And they want their home office to correct it immediately. And that's great. And the office I talked to that, you know, I've had for 40 plus years they said the same thing. They're not going to be part of it. They don't want to be part of it. And they even started a new tagline, you know, instead of like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. It's like a creepy neighbor, State Farm is there. <laughs> so it didn't take but a couple of days. And they reversed everything out of their home or corporate office. And uh, they just found out like Netflix and everybody else that it just it doesn't fit their bottom line and they're losing money. Well, how tone deaf do you have to be in the middle of the porn book issue in schools, pretty much nationwide, um, how tone deaf is it that you're gonna start throwing books of such a controversial nature at such young children in the middle of this? What are you thinking? In the end, State Farm issued a statement uh, discontinuing the program and they said, we no longer support the program allowing for distribution of books in schools and conversations about gender and identity should happen at home with the parents. Well, thank you very much. Oh, we actually talk about the parents for a change, huh? Well, you know what? The conservatives have been screaming for, for a long time now, decades now, that the schools are pushing and pushing and pushing this leftist agenda and that it's going to have consequences. Well, you know what? You don't have to look any further than the headlines from the last couple of days to understand that we've got a bunch of confused kids out there, and I think that kind of bumps us into, unfortunately, the school shooting situation. You know, John, you're bringing up the school shooting, and, and that's our next subject we want to talk about. And let's watch a clip to start this off from KVU ABC with Governor Abbott down in Texas 
and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Speaker of the House, was there. They had a lot of officials there, and they're going to go over what was occurring, what they're going to do with the families, how they're going to help the families, what they're going to do moving forward, and Beto steps in and interrupts. Let's listen. Time I will uh, pass the mic to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down and don't play this stuff. Shooting is right now and you are doing nothing. No, he needs to get his ass out of here. This isn't the place to talk this over. This is totally predictable when you Sir, you're out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick son of a bitch that would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. It's on assholes like you. Why don't you get out of here? So there you have it. You've got Beto interrupting it. The mayor of Uvalde, he's Don McLaughlin, starts going after, you know, Beto like he should. You know, Beto's doing this specifically for a political stunt at the expense of all the shooting victims. Absolutely. Number one, good job, mayor. Thanks for thanks for standing up for your people. It, it warms my heart to see a, a leader it immediately steps up and doesn't wait for someone else to do his job for him. Number two, I think this is actually more egregious than we even think it is, because if you think Beto O'Rourke, he's a well-known politician, national, internationally known, if you think he just snuck into this meeting and, and crashed it and it was a surprise to him or anybody else, they're deluding themselves. I, I, would, I would venture that someone probably had a conversation with him before he was allowed inside, and they knew going into it he was probably going to make an ass of himself. So to me, that's why I think that mayor responded so loudly and so clearly to him, because I believe Beto knew going into it, not only he was going to be causing a problem, but I also believe he was probably talked to and asked not to do that right then. So it, it, it's, it's even more egregious than it is just on its face, in my opinion. And it's typical of what the left and Beto has done and will continue to do. And the leftist Marxist, anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment, anti-Constitution people will keep doing. You've got Beto, who could have waited till after the press conference, done his own press conference in the hallway, debating every single point that either the governor, the mayor, lieutenant governor spoke up about, but he didn't because he wanted to make it a circus. Well, it's 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 embarrassing for him. Um, you know, he's he's flip flopped on the gun issue. He, one day he wants to take away AR-15s. The next day he's telling a reporter that he's not anti-gun. So number one, he can't even figure out what he, what his own beliefs are. But then he wants to go in the middle of a tragic situation and try to grandstand when he doesn't even have he doesn't even have a clearly articulated position on where he stands. Um, and he's trying to get elected in Texas without a clearly articulated position on the Second Amendment. He's not a serious candidate, in my opinion. Please like and smash that like and subscribe button for YouTube and Rumble.
and The Mike Lang Show. Well, Uvalde Mayor Don McLaughlin, great job. Great job stepping up for your city. Great job stepping up against Beto O'Rourke, who used the platform in totally the wrong manner. And right now, that's that shooting, awful, terrible, coming from a law enforcement perspective, both of us, John, being in law enforcement for years and years, don't really want to get into some of the specifics on what may have occurred, what may not have occurred, the report's not done, not, everything's not out, and being involved in situations, um, knowing that some information, true and correct information, will not be coming out until a later date. So, but let's get into the, maybe the law enforcement side of it, kind of where we've come from over the last couple decades. That's a good place to start. Um, like I want to echo real fast what you just said. These, these situations change so rapidly. The reporting is always inaccurate. And honestly, for anyone to get on the air and make any hardcore pronouncements about what's gone on thus far, I consider a little bit irresponsible because you're just going to have to come back and change it in the future. But like you were saying, where have we come with school shootings? I mean, school shootings aren't a new thing in our nation or for law enforcement, but definitely the way that we were trained has evolved over time. And I don't know about you, you, you were in law enforcement before me. But even as late as 1994 or so, when I went through the police academy, the training was, hey, you know what? If you get up on an active shooter situation, you hold what you got. You, you get a perimeter, you get, on the, you get on the radio to SWAT, and you don't go in there because you're not trained to do that was the, was the opinion. And so what happened in school shootings shortly after that, you know, it, I think it made law enforcement change or at least start to look at their, look at their training. And then finally, San, not Sandy Hook, finally Columbine was the one that actually made law enforcement change, change their tactics. Now, do me a favor. You tell me what y'all were taught when y'all went through the academy there in Fort Worth. We were taught pretty much the same thing. You, you take the scene and you set a perimeter, and whatever happens inside that perimeter, you kind of waited for SWAT in the, in the beginning. But it started to evolve because things started to happen, and they were bad things. And... From then, I think it was more of an officer-driven um, instead of a policy-driven where the officers started to get several officers together and go into these situations, which they should do. And that kind of started the active shooter. You know, if you're an active shooter, you get two or three officers, boom, you go in. And, you know... There was a lot that developed, you know, as far as perimeter, double entries, triple entries, but you have to take the threat out as fast as you can, and that's what we've learned. So the information coming out of this shooting, we don't know exactly yet who went in, when they went in, how they went in, what officers were on the ground, and all that information will come out and will be sorted out but it's going to have to go back to training. And I think over time um, I've been involved in it where you get a few officers down and you take care of the threat immediately. You can't have a threat. And I'll give you an example. We were called to a scene and we had a person with a rifle that was drunk shooting at houses, shooting at cars, patrol set a perimeter. The helicopter came in. He was shooting at the helicopter. Well, you have to stop that. 
because those houses, people are still in those houses. They weren't evacuated. So I took a team with me down, three people, and we took out the threat. So that person ended up being arrested and got taken care of. So that's what we have to continue to do is you have to take that immediate threat out as soon as possible. And maybe they did in this situation. Maybe they didn't. We're just going to have to see. Right. You know, I think what's, what's an unfortunate thing about law enforcement, especially you and I both come at least historically from large law enforcement situations is they're so slow to, slow to make change and slow to, slow to um, come up to speed based upon officers' experiences. Because I remember also, like you said, you know, before the policies actually changed, we did, you did hear rumblings inside law enforcement about, in situations, groups of officers taking control. And it's a good thing because um, they've saved lives. And if there's one thing that they've, I think that history, history and, and experience has taught us is that the quicker you give that shooter, give that aggressor an, an organized armed response, the quicker that situation is over. And I would, I'm going to pull this out of my head, but I would say, you know, looking, looking historically, when a shooter gets an a organized armed response, the, the situation ends, I would say, within tens of seconds. We're not talking an extended gunfight. When this organized response happens, the shooter usually ends it themselves by shooting themselves, or the officers will end up using overwhelming force to take them over. But law enforcement as a, as a segment of society was, was very slow to uptake that into their policies and procedures because we, we move slowly. I wrote police policy for several years for the Houston Police Department, and it's a very slow process. And so it took something like a Columbine happening, and it slapped us in the face because if you remember, that was really kind of the first school shooting that we got some video of pretty rapidly after it occurred. And when I say pretty rapidly, within a year or two after it occurred, before everything you know came out, we got video of what occurred. And I think that forced law enforcement to look in the eyes of the evil that was out there. And I don't know about your department, but at our department in Houston, they switched on a dime. Overnight, it went from hold what you got and called SWAT to get your butt in there and confront that shooter because that's why we give you a gun and that's why we give you a badge. And so what I fear about looking at what happened over the last couple of days, I fear maybe we're exposing another level of lack of training or maybe regressing back into older tactics. Time will tell, but you and I both know that training is always, at least during our careers, has been a serious sticking point with law enforcement. We need more of it, we need higher quality of it, and we need more of it that's actually applicable to the job we're doing on a daily basis. And you know, back in the, you know, I was in SWAT for 16 years and in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, we had a great command staff and they realized some of this um, I would say without the policies that things needed to be changed and I think Fort Worth PD was on you know the forefront of some of this going into some of the policies but getting back to the shooters um, how they get their guns why they get their guns they're going to get them doesn't matter if they steal them if they purchase them whatever there's already laws on the books that they're committing, you know, illegal acts against every single one of them. It's not the gun, it's the person. And it's going to have to be a person with a gun to stop that. And I know down in Texas, you know, this happened in Uvalde, that there are a lot of schools that put up signs that their teachers are armed on this campus. And what do you think about that? I think it's great. I think it's awesome. I mean, t to me, 
call me crazy, but the best thing for a bad guy with a gun is as many good guys with a gun as you can get. And the idea of arming our teachers and, and really honestly not even the, the students or the, necessarily even all the administrators knowing for sure who all is armed on a single given day on, the, on their staff, I think that's a good thing. You don't want anyone really to have a good read on the security level of that school except for the people who are actively involved in the security. And the most damage that is done is in the gun-free zones, whether it's schools, cities, whatever it may be. And that tells you right there that those programs do not work. When's the last time you saw an active shooting at a gun show? It doesn't happen because everyone's armed and they'll take care of that threat as quickly as possible because the thing that stops the threat is other people with guns. And we lie to ourselves by, by thinking we're going to solve this problem by restricting firearms. We solve this problem by changing the hearts and minds of people. And really, it's more of a mental health issue than anything else. All these school shootings, all the mass shootings, I would even say most of the street-level crime is influenced by a mental health issue, either something organic, they've got schizophrenia, or they're on drugs, which is also really a mental health issue. So. It's a mental health issue. This isn't a gun issue. We need to solve that problem. And you bring up mental health issue, and we're kind of getting deep down into this, but, you know, as somebody that was in the legislature and looked at the red flag laws and how the, the Democrat socialists who want to take away your guns, they want to throw in the mental health aspect of it with the red flag laws with zero due process where somebody can just, you know, whether it's a counselor at school, maybe well-intentioned, maybe good, but they can say, I think that seven-year-old Johnny was acting up and we're going to go see if his folks have guns in the home. Well, you know, leave it to the left to decide. We're, we're right. You're right. It is a mental health issue. But then they do something that's completely off the reservation. It's not going to solve the problem. It's going to cause more problems. Zero due process. So, you know, we could talk about mental health and certain ways to combat all that, but... Then you start getting into, just like Beto did in that video, he's going to take advantage of every situation to tear apart the Second Amendment rights. Well, my response to Beto is it's a, it's a Second Amendment right. It's a, it's a right that I'm just given by God. You're not taking it away. The tragedy is that. It's a tragedy. But this is a sick person with a sick mind, a sick heart, and, a, and was able to enact that. But, but you don't have to have a, a firearm to cause a problem. There have been school bombings in, historically. Back a hundred years ago, we've had people that were causing issues with schools and killing children. So this is not necessarily a firearms issue. Um, it's, it's an availability of guns, but you're not going to stop that. That cat is out of the bag. Um, we've got to take and, and reinforce our mental health program so that we identify these students who are having issues earlier and divert them away from, from the, uh, the, the further destructive behavior that ends up in a school shooting. And some of the stuff I've read, and I, once again, I don't want to get off in a bunch of details, but as you would expect that these school shootings always have, what are all the witnesses saying? He was a quiet kid. He was picked on. He didn't really socialize. You know, he, had, he was angry with his mother. How many times do we have to hear these same patterns over and over again before we realize, gee, this is a pattern. These aren't lone wolf shootings. These are known wolf shootings. These are kids who should have been taken out of the normal system a long time ago and kept and watched and counseled, have things put in place 
to where this, the opportunity for him to ever get to a firearm should have never been there. But if you also look at some of the social media stuff that's come out about the shooter, this kid was very confused and it was a, he was very public about his confusion. So why didn't we take steps to make changes in this student's life before it got violent? Oh yeah, because we live in a woke society now. Right, and confusion is a, a good word for it, understated, but there's a lot going on that, you know, to me, when we, when we talked about it earlier, about all the LGBTQ, transgender things going on, um, mental issue, in my opinion, and, you know, when that's on Facebook, and, and I don't want to go too far into what, you know, what was on this, this guy's Facebook, and, and, you know, we'll leave that to another show, but um, that's all part of the problem, amongst other things. The, a confused student with access to firearms shoots up his school, porn books in the school, insurance companies pushing confusing material on young students. None of this is happening in a vacuum. Believe it or not, this is all connected at some level, and it's a, it's a sickness of society. And, you know, you bring up, you know, a sickness in society, and we're talking about porn books and things like that. Let's talk about abortion, and let's talk about Whoopi Goldberg mm. and what she brought up the other day. And we could take a look at the Washington Free Beacon, and Whoopi's on her show, The View, and she talks about the Archbishop of San Francisco that called on Nancy Pelosi. And I think that same Archbishop called on Joe Biden, right? Um, and denied receiving communion for them, and they're, they're Catholic. And uh, she basically says, hey, look, Archbishop, this is not your job, dude. Well, it is. Let's listen to Whoopi. starting to blur the lines between church and state. The Archbishop of San Francisco is calling for Speaker Nancy Pelosi to be denied receiving communion because of her pro-choice stance. He's one of the priests who also called for President Biden to be denied sacrament. This is not your job, dude. How dare Whoopi? You know, she plays a nun on a couple of movies, so she knows all about, of course, Catholicism, what goes on, right? But uh, here's Whoopi talking about what's right and wrong in the Catholic Church. She's not Catholic, but she's going to have separation of church and state, period. Well, my understanding is, you know, what Nancy Pelosi did is she actually finally just removed herself from communion with, the, with, the, with her church. You know, the stance of the church has always been anti-abortion, has always been if you're, you know, a hard line against the, the tenets of the church, you're already out of communion. So it was, this was a hard issue with Nancy to begin with, and she removed herself. So they need to get over it. It's, it's way past due that our churches stand up and say, this is our rules. If you don't like it, there's the door. This is a free association of people. And if you don't want to believe the things that we believe in, there is the door. And so it's very refreshing to finally see a cardinal in San Francisco in such a controversial place stand up for the right thing. And I was amazed, and you said San Francisco, so we have an archbishop standing up. And let's kind of delve into this a little bit. Um, I'm not Catholic, but when she says, it's not your job, dude, and referring to the archbishop in Catholicism, aside from catechism of the Catholic Church, they have canon law. There are basically rules and bylaws of the church, 
in the canon law of the Catholic Church, says this, Those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or declaration of the penalty and others preserving in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. So they hold the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, very sacred, and if you're going to be killing babies, then you don't come with a clean heart or without sin to communion. If you're not in a heart place that's right, you should never approach that communion. So to me, the Cardinal's actually doing her a favor. He's keeping her from further stumbling as far as I'm concerned because her mind and her heart aren't right on the abortion issue. And with as sacred as communion is, that's, that's the Archbishop doing his job in helping to protect Nancy from herself. As well as Joe Biden. Exactly. And, you know, we're, we're talking about the abortion issue, and, of course, the Supreme Court, and, and we talked about it before, and the decision, hopefully, that's going to be sent down to the states for the states to decide uh, what each and individual state wants to do. And, and several states in the South um, are going to be really tough on abortion, but you're going to have states like California, Washington, probably New York, that are going to go way on the other side of, you know, killing babies. So, you know, people in the media, when we talk about the swamp in the media, they don't like that stuff. No, they don't. In fact, I think as early as this morning or earlier today, I think it was Oklahoma finally passed what's going to end up being the most restrictive law. It's basically overturning Roe v. Wade immediately in their state if Roe v. Wade at the national level is, uh, is overturned. So abortions will become illegal, is my understanding, in Oklahoma pretty much as soon as uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned. Good for them. Yep, I agree. Good, good for the legislatures, good for their, uh, their governors to stand up and do the right thing. Please like and smash that like and subscribe button for YouTube and Rumble and the Mike Lang Show. So with all this being said, you got to look at President Joe Biden. And, you know, we have the Korean pop supergroup, BTS, that is set to meet President Joe Biden on Tuesday. You know, with on the verge of World War III and a food famine and a violence crisis, what else do you need other than an effeminate Asian pop group uh, coming and visiting the White House? Well, maybe that's a little rest and relaxation for Biden. Maybe he needs some of that. Maybe they need to rub the leg, the hairs on his leg up and down or something. Yeah, get, get his nose all going and everything. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this, this, is, this is the ridiculousness that in the midst of world crisis, this is what's going on in our, in our White House. By the way, he got 80 million votes. Did you realize that? Oh, yeah, he sure he did. Yeah, and we're looking at that, right? You just can't, you can't make it up. So be sure to tune in and watch President Biden with his K-pop group coming up because you're sure not going to see him talk about the food crisis, Ukraine, Taiwan, anything else. But I'm sure he'll be there for K-pop.